we're looking at a sermon series. It's, it'll be for the summer, what Jesus is for. And again, the reason for the sermon series is because we as Christians are often known about what we're against. Now, don't be mistaken. That's not a bad thing. We have to know where we stand and, and what's, what's going on in culture in many ways. It, we need to confront it and we need to stand strong against it because what's happening in culture in many ways is insane. Am I right? Amen? Yeah, there's insanity going on. And so there's a point where Christians have to stay. We have to go, you know what? We're not budging. Here's the line. We're not moving. And we're going to get accused. Well, you Christians are against everything. No, not necessarily. We're for some things too. And what we're for is what Jesus was for. And so last week we kicked off this sermon series by looking at the fact that Jesus was for, radically for, the kingdom of God. He preached about it. He talked about it. He initiated his ministry, talked in many of the parables about the kingdom. And then after his resurrection, he talked about the kingdom again. And he said, this kingdom will be preached to the ends of the earth. He was obsessed with the kingdom of God. So you and I have a, a great opportunity, potentially. And here it is. And I said this last week, Lord willing, more and more people in culture today will become disillusioned, disillusioned with the kings and kingdoms of this world. As they, you know, many people put their hope in government and the kings and kingdoms of this world and Lord willing, many of them go, you know what, this, this world's got nothing for me. These powers that be have nothing for me. And that's where we as Christians can step in and go, we've got something better. We have a king and a kingdom that is worth being a part of and worth knowing. And so we can do that, but the question is, for that to happen, we have to be radically kingdom-minded. So that's where we were last week, and it's going to tie right into this week. So if you're, if you're not with us, if you're traveling, which we all are, you can stay connected over the summer months online. So there is a phenomenon happening on social media that probably most of you in this service are familiar with. I was shocked at how many people weren't familiar with this phenomenon in the other services, but maybe I shouldn't have been. If you've encountered this phenomenon, you probably hate it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about this right here, uh, virtue signaling. So how many of you know what virtue signaling is? Okay, so if, you, if you're not familiar with it, I'll, make you, I'll, I'll help you here. But virtue signaling is where a person openly flaunts how virtuous they are on social media, usually with regard to some social justice issue or some trendy progressive woke cause, right? We see it in Hollywood all the time. You know, something pops up. This is the new latest trend. This is the, the bandwagon to jump on. And then all the Hollywood elites jump on it. And then they get online and say, look at how virtuous I am. You know, I'm helping this, the oppressed. I'm helping all the, you know, whoever's the latest oppressed group, you know, you jump on that bandwagon and go, look at me, look at me. I'm the defender of those that are oppressed. So this is called virtue signaling. It's basically a not so subtle way of saying, everybody look at me. Everybody look at me and how incredibly pious and wonderful I am. And so um, this has been happening on social media. How many of you have encountered it? How many of you it makes you sick to your stomach? Yes, right, 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 very good. Okay, so good. You guys, by and large, know what this is. Now, while the term virtue signaling might be new to some of you, the underlying concept is not. You're very familiar with it, whether you know it or not. And that is because this type of behavior isn't limited to those in the 21st century who are virtue signaling about being woke to some progressive cause or some, you know, social justice issue. As a matter of fact, those that virtue signal are simply stealing a page out of those, out of a book out of the book of those who've done it many centuries earlier. earlier. That's what they're doing. The people that they're stealing this page from, of course, are the religious leaders in Jesus' day. The only difference between what is happening in the 21st century with regard to what happened in the first century is what is being virtue signaled about. In the first century, they were virtue signaling about their religious deeds, not about being woke. 
Do you want a good example of what virtue signaling looked like in the first century? Looked something like this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Don't you hate it when people do that? I mean, it's like, there's just no need for that. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. There it is. That's virtue signaling. If you want a great definition, a very simple definition of virtue signaling, it's right there. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others. Virtue signaling at its finest. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. What you're watching in the 21st century on social media was existed in the first century, even in Jerusalem, even within the temple itself. These men in Jesus's day were self-absorbed glory seekers. Know anybody like that? Self-absorbed glory seekers. They didn't hesitate to put their deeds on display for all to see. And then Jesus even highlights a couple specific ways that they were doing this. And I just made kind of fun of this, but they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So what in the world is going on here? What does that look like? So a little background will help. Four different times in the Old Testament, Jesus told the Jews to write his law upon their foreheads and keep it on their hands. Let me give you an example of one of these passages out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here's what it says. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, I'm going to stop right here. And this is a side note off of this sermon. Teach them diligently to your children, folks. That's what it takes to protect children. We are living in a day and age where our children are under assault. Would you not agree? Our children are under assault, folks. It is not enough as Christian parents and grandparents and those that are members of the body of Christ to just haphazardly teach God's word to our children. We need to be absolutely diligent at doing this because that is what is going to save and protect them. And you go, well, what does it look like to diligently do it? It begins to kind of outline it. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk about, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, it consumes your life and it consumes your household. The word of God is being proclaimed everywhere you are. And then it says this, you shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So this is just one of the passages. Now, as a result of this passage and other passages like it, the Jews made leather boxes out of the hides of clean animals, and they actually stitched it with 12 stitches, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and they would put it and attach it to their heads. And you can see this is a modern-day example of a phylactery right there. Now, here's what the Jews did. They, do, they did back then what we do today. Religious people are great at virtue signaling, and I'm going to prove it to you. You ready? So, as time passed, some of the Jews started making this box bigger <laughs> to show how spiritual they were. And you're going, well, how does that relate to today? What could I bring that's really big to impress people? You know, I show up to church with a you know, little Bible, and I look at the person next to me, and they got a bigger Bible than me, so next week I show up with an even bigger Bible. <laughs> right? They make... They're phylactery, yeah, we make them big, and we get this big, oh, you know, pretty soon you're sitting there, yeah, Tina, hold up, Tina, look at how spiritual Tina is, and that's a Bible for the ages, look at over there, yes, very good. For those of you that didn't bring your Bible, good for you. <laughs> They're no more righteous than you, don't let that intimidate you, but that's what we do, right? We're great at, they, they just made them bigger, we do the same thing in this, in this generation. On top of that, 
what they did is that they started, they customarily would just wear those at prayer time, but some of the Jews started wearing them all the time. You know, when you see them out at Sizzler or something in there, you go, why do you have your phylactery on? This is just not necessary. But they would wear it like to Sizzler, you know, joking, of course, there's no Sizzler in the first century, but um, this is what they did. They, start, they made them bigger and started wearing them all the time. And uh, just to show how super spiritual they were. Now, the references to the fringes in this, uh, it says they make their phylacteries long and their, and their fringes, or they broaden their phylacteries and make their fringes long, also finds um, its origins in the Bible. And there's a fringe right there. It's, you see, the, it's, not the, it's not the thing wrapped around their arm. That's kind of part of the phylactery. But the, the, the fringe or the tassel is what's hanging off the sides of the garments. And you can see it right there. And this comes, for example, out of the book of Numbers. Here's what this says. It says, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. That's what the Bible says. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So these these fringes or these tassels were there to remind people about God's word. The problem was, is that they did what we are tempted to do is they started, they wanted to draw attention to themselves. So not only did they make this big, they made these tassels longer and longer and longer, longer and longer and longer, just to show how super spiritual they were. Now you're going, well, hold on a second. I understand bringing a big Bible and showing off that way, but what's an example of a tassel? You want to know an example of a tassel, modern day tassel is? Not only do you bring a big Bible, but you've got it highlighted in six different shades of neon. So that when you open it up, it goes, ah, and everybody is just glowing green and red on the ceiling. And the people next to you are like, wow, look at how much they highlighted their Bible. That's incredible. You know, and you're like, mm. So again, I'm just making light of it. I'm being a little bit humorous, but we can cast stones at this generation and go, gosh, how could they make their phylacteries big and their tassels long? What's wrong with them? And not even realize we do it too. We just do it in subtle ways, different ways, but in subtle ways, just like them. Like the phylacteries, these religious leaders found all sorts of ways to make their tassels show off. Now, the second way the religious leaders would draw attention to themselves, according to our passage back here, it says this. Uh, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They do all their deeds to be seen for others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by, other, by others. It's, they wanted the title. Look at me. A rabbi has walked in the door. Everybody look at me. Give me the red carpet treatment. Listen, those that virtue signal today, they don't, have, they don't hold a candle to these guys. These guys could virtue signal on a very grand scale. Now, that Jesus opposed this is crystal clear from the passage. He's not for uh, virtue signaling. The, the question is, what is Jesus for and why was he for it? Okay? It's on that note, church. It's my honor to take you to the word of God today. Our passage today will be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God this morning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets 
that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. Church, hear the word of God this morning. So in this passage, Jesus is stating, believe it or not, what he's for. We know what he's against. He's against virtue signaling. But what is he for? Here's what he's for. Virtual silence. Put your virtue in silent mode as you would your phone. Keep it to yourself. When you are tempted to draw attention to yourself and your good deeds, conceal them and hide them. Do them in secret. Be content with an audience of one. Now, you want to know why this is so relevant? Let me give you one good reason why this is so relevant today. Folks, we are living in a day and age where everybody is virtue signaling online. Everywhere. Virtu- you, know, you just go online and people are like, look at me, look at me. Virtue signaling everywhere. Grandstanding on the internet. The last thing this world needs is for Christians to be doing the same thing. Amen? Instead of virtue signaling, they need to look at the church and go, don't look at us, look at him. Look at him. People that are pointing to him, don't look at us, look at him. In a world where everybody's saying, look at me, we can stand out by saying, you know what? Get your eyes off of us. Get your eyes off this world and put them on Jesus. Now, this is where things get really interesting because in the chapter right before this, Jesus said these words. Listen to this. You are the light of the world. A a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now listen to this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What? Hold on a second. This is chapter 5 and chapter 6. You're going to say to do just the opposite. What's up, Jesus? What is it? Show your good works or hide them? Well, it really comes down to motivation. I had a great quote for this sermon. As a matter of fact, I found it right away. I always start my sermons a couple weeks ahead. And I found it and I'm like, this is awesome. And for whatever reason, um, I decided, nah, I don't need it. And then I got rid of it. And then I went, I'm like, oh, I need it. I went back. I couldn't find it. I, I couldn't find it. I don't know who said it. But here's the gist of it, okay? Because I want to give credit where credit's due. Here's what the the, the gist of the quote was. When you're tempted to be ashamed, shine. And when you're tempted to be proud, keep it private. That was it. When you're tempted to be ashamed of being a Christ follower and serving him, that's when you shine. Shine your good works. Let people know that you're not ashamed to be a Christ follower and what he's done in and through your life. When you're ashamed, shine. But when you're tempted to be proud, that's when you keep it private. I think that's a good rule of thumb as you navigate this. Because here's the deal. The attitude of the believer in all that we do should be that God gets the glory, right? We should always be pointing people to him. In a world where everybody's saying, look at me, we're going, don't look at us. Look at him. This is what the early disciples did. Listen to this passage from the Apostle Paul. It's powerful. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. 
Listen, this is the Apostle Paul who had had revelation from heaven so powerful that God had to keep him humble, that a thorn in the flesh was given to keep him humble. This is the Apostle Paul with all the authority, with visions from heaven, revelation from heaven, and he goes, hey, by the way, it's not about us. It's not about Peter, Paulos, Apollos, or Paul. Don't look at us. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. If you're going to look at anybody, look at the king on the throne. And this goes to last week's sermon. What was Jesus all about? What was he for? He was for the kingdom, and he was for the king of that kingdom, sitting on the throne. Look at him. In a generation, folks, where we have to stand hard, hard and fast on certain things, that's great. Start, stand hard and fast, but let's just not know, be known for what we're against. Let's, be, let's give people a taste of what we're for. Here's what we're for. We're for a kingdom and a king that is eternal and amazing in every way. If you want to put your eyes on anything, put them on him. If the things of this world are disappointing you, set your eyes there on the king and the kingdom. With ourselves as servants for Jesus. That's all we are, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, this treasure of Jesus in the gospel. God has put it in jars of clay. That is our lives. We're nothing but jars of clay. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? Why did God put the gospel in you and me? Why didn't he give it to angels who are so much stronger than us in this current age? Why didn't he do it himself? Why did he put it in us? Here's why. Here's one reason why. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When people look at what God is doing in us and the gospel he has set in us, they should not see us. They should see him. We should be pointing to him. When they go, wow, that's incredible. You're, you're an amazing person. Go, uh, no, I'm not. I'm just a servant for the Lord. You look to him. Anything you see in me that you think is praiseworthy, direct it up. So here's the deal. We let our light shine before men in as much as God gets 100% of the glory 100% of the time. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what's Paul say? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it what? Do it all for the glory of God. These are the, some of the most mundane things we do every day eating and drinking. And Paul says, even when you're doing the most mundane of activities in your life, do it for the glory of God. Do it for the glory of God. However, if we're going to be completely honest, we have to admit just how easy it is to be tempted to virtue signal when it comes to our good deeds. Now, if you're not familiar with the term virtue signal, now you are. And because I'm such a cool, hip pastor, I'm going to introduce another term for you. You ready? It's called the humble brag. Have you heard of the humble brag? Who's heard of the humble brag? It's the same thing as virtue signaling. Humble brag is where it's like, you know, I'm just going to find this really humble way to brag about what I'm doing. Uh, so after the first service, I was out on the plaza, and uh, there's a new Sunday school this class that started, and so I was taking some people to it. I said, hey, come to Sunday school, and so I was going to walk them over there. And I caught myself, and I, I looked at everybody that had just come out of the service. I said, everybody else, we're going to Sunday school class. You do whatever it is you need to do. We're going to Sunday school. And everybody laughed on the plaza, but you see what I'm doing. I'm saying, oh, you guys go have fun at lunch. We're going to go to Sunday school. We're going to suffer and do this. You know, it's a humble brag. And, and we can find amazing ways to brag about ourselves in, you know, just humble ways. You do what you do and, you know, I'll just suffer for the kingdom. And so we're really good at this sort of thing. But folks, if our deeds don't point people to the glory of God, we should do them in secret. Practice being virtually silent. But it's tempting. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. The flesh wants the praise of men. The praise of men is like, it's like sugar. You get a little bit and you can't stop. You want more. 
You see, what Jesus is really advocating for in Matthew chapter 6, you want to know what he's for? He's not necessarily for being virtually silent for the sake of being virtually silent. He is for the glory of God. He's all about the glory of God. Last week, he's for the kingdom. This week, he's for God's glory. He's radically for the kingdom and radically for the glory of God. And folks, in a day and age where people, Lord willing, are becoming disillusioned with what this world has to offer them, they look to us and don't just see what we're against, but what we're for. You want to know what we're for? We're for a king and a kingdom that is glorious beyond your wildest imagination. And you can enter it and be a part of it. And it is eternal. Amen? But only if we're kingdom-minded, only if we're getting our eyes off of ourselves and setting them on the king who sits on that throne of that kingdom. Folks, in a day and age where everybody is virtue signaling, the last thing this world needs is to look at you and me and look at the church and see us doing it too. They need to see people who are radically others focused on the Lord. We need to be consumed with the glory of God. This is what Jesus is for. Soli Deo Gloria. Are you familiar with that term? It's one of the five core tenets of the Protestant Reformation. You're in a Protestant church, right? What are the five core tenets of the Protestant Reformation? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the scriptures alone that are the final source of authority. Soli Deo Gloria, all to the glory of God alone. This was the five core tenets of the Protestant Reformation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now the Catholic will say we're saved by grace through faith. We add the word alone to the end of that sentence. We're saved by grace through faith alone. We're not saved by grace through faith and participating in the sacraments and obeying the church and trying not to sin so that we end up, don't end up in purgatory. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, period, end of sentence. We are fully justified when we place our faith in Jesus. That's the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant. For the Catholic, you grow in your justification. For a Protestant, you're fully justified the moment you believe. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It's... The scriptures alone that are our final source of authority, it is not the Pope who is our final source of authority, thankfully, but it is the scriptures that are our final source of authority. But here's the kicker. What is all of this? Why did the, why did the reformers fight for this? So that God gets the glory. They weren't doing it for themselves. They were fighting for these principles, for the gospel for the authority of scripture so that God would be magnified. God would be glorified. This is exactly why Jesus says this. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Notice that he says beware. He's not saying that don't ever practice your righteousness. Listen, people are going to see the good works you do. You can't run around hiding all the time, nor should you, because you should let your light shine before others so that they can see your good deeds and praise God in heaven. So there's going to be times in which people are going to be watching what you're doing, and there's nothing you can do about it. What do you do in that moment? You do exactly what Jesus says. You beware. You guard your heart. You protect your heart so that you, if anybody comes to you and says, you're amazing, you go, hey, thank you. I appreciate it, but give the glory to God. He's the one. Take your eyes off me to put it on him. Anything you see in me that you think is praiseworthy, don't give me the praise. Give it to him. Give it to him. Be on guard because temptation is always lurking, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Flesh wants that praise. Look how big my Bible is. Look how, look how many colors I have in it. I have a lot of colors in this Bible. Be impressed. So we got to watch ourselves. So as a result, sometimes the appropriate thing to do is to go virtually silent. Go dark. Be quiet. Be content with an audience of one. Because you know what you, the last thing you want to be guilty of? The last thing you want to be guilty of is robbing God. 
And you might be sitting here and go, do I rob God? Let me tell you one way you can rob, rob God is you take the glory that belongs to him and you keep it for yourself. And we can do that all the time. And we might be guilty of robbing God far more than we think in those moments, practice being virtually silent. Now, Jesus gives us a really important reason why we want to remain virtually silent right here in our passage. Look what it says, the very next sentence. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It's a very simple principle, folks. Whatever you do for the praise of men will be rewarded for, by men. Whatever you do for the praise of God and the glory of God will be rewarded by God. The big difference, of course, is that what you do, the reward that you get for men will be cheap and fleeting, and the reward that you get from God will be glorious and eternal. It's just that simple. If you want to do something to impress Pastor Bill, I'll give you your reward, but it'll only sustain you maybe till you get to lunch. That's all I got to offer. No good. Nothing. Nothing here. And by the way, whatever you virtue signal and tell me you've done, I'll forget by the time I get to lunch anyway, too. But you know who never forgets? Our Lord. You be content with an audience of one when it's necessary. You don't rob. You say, God, I'm going to do this in, in secret and silent so that nobody sees God because I want you to get all the glory. And he sees and rewards. Now, to illustrate how easy it is to fall into this type of temptation, Jesus gives two very practical examples of how religious leaders in his day would virtue signal. And the first is this. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, perhaps there is no way to virtue signal that is more tempting, I suppose, than when it comes to helping those in need, right? Now, what's interesting is there doesn't seem to be any biblical evidence that those in the first century actually tooted a, a, had a trumpet blowing when they gave to the needy. It seems that Jesus, it's kind of Jesus' way of just saying, don't toot your own horn. Perhaps they did, but none of the scholars I read could find any examples of this. So it just seems like Jesus is simply saying, listen, don't draw attention to yourself when you're helping others, when you're giving to others, especially those in need. Don't do that. Resist the temptation. Now, are you going to be able to do that every time? No. There's going to be times you're helping the needy and others are going to see. In that moment, what do you do? You beware. You guard your heart, just as Jesus said. But even in that moment, you just keep giving God the glory and you're good. You're good, but guard your heart. But as human beings, like I said, it's so, the flesh is so weak, especially when it comes to doing something like helping the less fortunate. Man, if ever there's a time I want you to praise me, it's when I'm being so cool and helping this person who needs my help. So when we're tempted in this way to give to the needy in a way that makes it all about us, don't virtue signal, remain virtually silent, go dark, put your virtue on silent mode. Interestingly enough, this is something I learned as I prepared this message. Scholars have discovered that there was a place in the first century temple called the Chamber of Silence. It was a place where Jews could go and leave an offering to help the poor, and no one would see it. And likewise, if you were in need, and of course you don't want people to always know that you're in need, somebody could go in there and take a little bit of that if they needed help without anybody knowing that they took it. But the point is, is that we could learn something from that in our giving. Don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. Give it away. That is, and when you help others, that is silent. Now, again, you're not always going to be able to do that. And in those moments, you just guard your heart and keep giving glory to God. Now, the second 
example that Jesus gives is that of prayer. This is what he says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and be, to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray. Don't go into your room and leave the door open and open your windows and then pull out Mr. Microphone and start saying your prayers so that everybody, even though you are in your room, can still hear you. Don't do that. Shut the door, shut your windows, and pray in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, because prayer is something we do even more than perhaps giving to the needy, you know, when we give to the needy, those, are, those opportunities arise, and of course, they're presented to us, but we pray probably far more on a more regular basis, and so this becomes even more tempting in that way than giving to the needy because we have more opportunities to do it. A person can showboat their prayers multiple times a day if they want to. And here's what's fun. If I, I wish I had the time to do this, but I can't. If I said, what are some ways we can showboat when we pray? I bet you we could spend two hours coming up with ways to showboat when you pray. But I just got a short list. How about the person that prays that really long prayer? You know, hey, it's your turn to pray. Dear Lord. And like 35 minutes later, amen. And it's like, what was that? You know? Or how about the eloquently worded prayer? The person that prays and you're, you're like, what? I've never even heard half of these words. I need a dictionary to know what you just said. I don't know what you said. Or the very pious sounding person, you know, thou, O Lord, thy king and master, you know, very pious. Or how about the person that prays that loves to spew knowledge, right? Dear Lord, in Genesis 1, 1 through 6, <laughs> you use the Hebrew in a mighty way you know? Or the person that, you know, when they pray, they recite scripture and it's like, what is this? Is this a prayer or is this you reciting your memory verses and just using me as a, a mean to do this? Again, the fact is there's no shortage of ways that we can show about when praying. And the Jews did this. The religious leaders did this. And here's how they did it. They would do it by mentioning as many as divine attributes of God as they could, as they could cram into one prayer. They'd do it. So they'd go like, for example, dear, gracious, merciful, kind, loving, long-suffering, wonderful, all-powerful, all-knowing. You know, and they'd go on and on and on. Of course, whoever prays after them has to go, you know, whoa, geez, you listed 36 things. I needed to come up with 40 now. But this is what they would do. Now, sometimes when you're in positions of leadership like mine, like I'm a pastor, I have to pray publicly all the time. What do I do in that situation? I guard my heart. I guard my heart. And I keep it all about the glory of God. And if I'm ever in a situation where I think I need to let somebody else do it, hey, you do it. And there's times when I'll, I'll do that and other, you will too. You'd be like, you know what? They'll go, Bill, will you pray? And I go, no, you know what? Give it to somebody else. Let, ask somebody else to do it. And you'll just pass it on because I don't want it to be about me. So often when I go out, you know, especially when people invite me out to lunch, <clears throat> it happens a lot <laughs> with the righteous among you. <laughs> just kidding. But so, no, so often I'll go to somebody's house, you know, and it'll be time to pray. And what does everybody do? They turn to Pastor Bill. Pastor Bill, you need to pray. Pastor Bill, you're here. You pray. Now, that's not foreign to you because it happens to you, I bet. Many of you, when you go to family functions, they know you as the religious one, right? You're the Christian. So when it comes time to pray, what do they do? They turn to you, right? So the point is, is there's times when you're going you're gonna to be praying publicly. What do you do in those situations? You guard your heart. You guard your heart. You just make that prayer. Point Jesus to don't make that prayer about you. You keep that focused on Jesus and give him all the glory. And again, that's important because we are living in a world where everybody's virtue signaling. The last thing the world needs to see is Christians doing that. 
Everything we should be doing should be done for the glory of God. And if there's any question about our motives, what do we do? We go virtually silent, go dark. Put your virtue on silent mode, be content with an audience of one, and move forward. We'd all agree, better to have the praise of Almighty God than the meaningless praise of a million men. Amen? Amen. So again, what Jesus is advocating for you guys isn't that we be virtually silent just for the sake of it. It is that we be radically for and focused on the kingdom of God. Uh, Pardon me, the glory of God. Last week was the kingdom of God. This week is the glory of God. This is what drove Jesus. Yes, he stood against things, but it was what he was for that defined him. He was for the kingdom and for God's glory. That's it. Soli Deo Gloria. Is this what defines me? Is this what consumes me? And that's really the pressing question. If I could ask you any question as we wrap up, it's this, is what consumes you? See, what consumes you is what you're for. What you think about, what you spend time doing, whatever that is, it is, it is what you are for. And I simply ask you, is it the king? Is it the kingdom of God and the glory of God that consumes you? The greatest preacher that Europe ever produced was Charles Spurgeon. The greatest preacher that the United States ever produced was Jonathan Edwards. Here's what he had to say on this subject. God's purpose for my life is that I have a passion for his glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that those two passions are one passion. Amen. God, may I be consumed with your glory and any joy I find in this life, may it be in giving you glory. Folks, there is no greater calling to which you have been called than to glorify God. Folks, in a day and age, again, where everybody's saying, look at me, you and I are going to stand apart where we're going to go, guys, it's not about us. It's about God. Put your eyes up there and you're going to be literally water to thirsty people who are going, tell me more. I am so sick of this world and what this world is all about and what the kings and kingdoms of this world have to offer. Please tell me more. And you're going to go, let me tell you about a king and a kingdom that is amazing beyond your wildest. And it's going to be like water for them, living water for them. This means we have to look at everything we do and ask, am I doing it for the glory of God? Wouldn't it be great if the people of this world, when they think about you and me, they don't just think about what we're against, but what we're for. We're for the kingdom. We're for God's glory. That's what those people are about. And you know what? Some of them, if they get disillusioned when they turn to us, they're going to go, yes, tell me more. Tell me more. So I finished with this question. Here it is. How for the glory of God would people say you are? Amen? Let's pray. 